Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sri and Steve. Isn't it good to hear the scriptures read well? Isn't that powerful when we hear the scriptures read well? And isn't it good to be here this morning? Who's glad to be here this morning? I hope you're glad to hear this morning. That's, that's good to hear. And sing that great Matt Redman song, 10,000 Reasons. What a, a powerful, motivating thing to re reflect again on that, uh, that wonderful truth. Well, we come back to our 1 Corinthians 15 passage this morning. I'm a man under orders. This is the second in Graham's series. I do have to report to you, Graham's doing well, as we understand it. Uh, eager to get back into harness. We're trying to just sort of hold him back a bit so he doesn't get too excited to get back into it too quickly. But uh, following some uh, results of some uh, tests tomorrow, results of those tests, uh, he'll have a bit of a clearer idea what he's going to do. Uh, as we come to uh, the responsibility of the preacher, I feel a little bit like the, uh, the story of the African-American preacher who wasn't always doing so well, but he had a dear godly African-American lady in this black congregation in the front. So when he was doing well, she'd say, Preach it, brother, preach it! And when he was not doing so well, she'd bury her head in her sands and say, Lord, help him, Lord, help him. So if you uh, go one way or the other on that this morning, I'll, I'll get the message. <laughs> well, how good to come back to this terrific passage from 1 Corinthians 15, the whole, the whole 58 verses, this sustained defence of the, not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the profound reality that each of us will rise from the dead. This is not some fringe doctrine. This is not some, something for the eccentric fringe. This is absolutely core business for those who call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ. So look again at the passage and keep your Bibles open if you've got them there as we come to that, uh, that uh, opening line in verse 3, by the way, where Paul says, For I handed on to you as the first importance... Uh, what in turn I received from Christ, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's one of his opening lines. He's grabbing people's attention with that, uh, that core statement. And in this great chapter on the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, you'll remember he prefaced his remarks, his exhortation with these words, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news I proclaim to you, which you turn, in turn received, in which you stand, through which you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you. What is received from Christ and this challenge to stand firm, don't waver, don't hang loose on these important uh, truths. The mainspring of Christian confidence in regard to our human destiny is the hope of the resurrection. And that is based on the conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It was the prominent American evangelist, Dr. Billy Graham, who said that the question he was most frequently asked by people was the question, is there life after death? Isn't that interesting? The most frequently asked question. That question's still a live issue today, though sadly people come up with all sorts of bizarre responses in our culture, which of course is in a sense a post-Christian culture. Some years ago, the Canadian actor Donald Sutherland had a near-death experience, the result of a, a, critical, heart a critical attack of, of uh, spinal meningitis, which came while he was f filming a film in Yugoslavia. He described it to a reporter what it was like. 
the doctors frantically trying to do everything they could to, to no avail and eventually given up all hope of him recovering. He recounts what happened in the hours and days that followed and I quote, then the fever, the pain, the acute distress seemed to evaporate. I was floating above my body, surrounded by soft blue light. I began to glide down a long tunnel, slipping farther away from the bed. Suddenly I found myself back in my body and from then on I recovered very quickly. Afterwards the doctors told me that I had actually died for a short time. Don Sutherland's experience is not unique. Some of you uh, read Catherine Kuhlman's book, talking about near-death experiences. A professor of uh, psychiatry at Virginia, USA, who had studied many cases of near-death experiences, recorded that there is increasing evidence that people do live after death. And he adds these sobering words, I think it is prudent to prepare for that eventuality. That's good, isn't it? I think it's prudent to prepare for that eventuality. This is consistent with a notice which appeared in the city of Rome in the Jesuit Review, part of the Roman Catholic Church, urging bishops and priests to take courage to instill in their flocks a wholesome fear of what they may expect in the next life if they do not behave themselves in this one. Morris Rawlings, a cardiologist and professor of medicine in the United States, goes even further. He has had first-hand experiences of emergency cases and people who have had near-death experiences. He says that nearly 50% of the group of 300 people that he interviewed reported quite different experiences to those of Donald Sutherland. He spoke of their talk of terrible darkness, devil-like figures, and things more appropriate to what the Bible might refer to as hell rather than a place of bliss and tranquility. Now, whatever your view on these matters, we cannot bury our heads in the sand and pretend that these things don't matter. Now, maybe you're not persuaded by reports from near-death experiences. Maybe these things seem too remote from you and the struggles which you are going through. But there are other struggles, not quite like that, which can breed a sense of helplessness and hopelessness in people. Hugh Mackay, the social researcher calls this the big angst, the rising level of anxiety which people speak of today. People frequently share feelings of insecurity which sap their energy and high levels of stress creating havoc in their lives, all of which can lead people to a sense of futility and hopelessness. Some time ago a couple were interviewed on television and spoke of the trauma they experienced when their high achieving, brilliant daughter took her own life. When the company she worked for kept raising the performance targets of their star recruit, she finally could take it no more and she tragically ended her life. Futility, hopelessness, despair can in fact take very, very different forms. That might be an extreme example of the despair, the sense of helplessness and hopelessness that many report, but it is widespread in our community. Into which context the Christian hope comes brightly, brilliantly shining. It's against this backdrop that we need to have our minds and our spirits refreshed this morning as we continue in this Easter season. While all might have been dark and hopeless on that first Good Friday, the night when Jesus, in fact, was uh, 
brutally killed and the disciples drifted away from the site of the execution, Sunday morning dawned with a brilliant announcement of hope. Weeping women returned to the burial site in the early hours of the morning are transformed by a personal encounter with the risen Lord. They rushed from the darkened cemetery to run and report the news to the other disciples. You can imagine Mary blurting out the words between gasps for breath, I've seen the Lord. How can we grasp afresh this morning something of this Easter hope to rejuvenate us, to inspire us, to encourage us, to strengthen us? How can we find our minds and spirits lifted from the sense of despondency, even futility, that can so easily overtake us? Where does this hope come from and how can we lay hold of it for ourselves today? Now the first great truth I think we need to focus on here is that hope is guaranteed by the promises of God. Throughout the whole of 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection, one refrain is sustained throughout the 58 verses. It is the promise that God raises the dead. All that happened to Jesus through the dark days of his arrest and trial, right through the dramatic turnaround on Easter morning, happened in accordance with God's plan and purpose. Unlike what the little boy said as he watched the crucifixion in a powerful picture in a Chicago museum, the little boy said, if I'd been there, Dad, I wouldn't have let them do it. The truth is God was there. It was necessary. The Son of Man must suffer. But that is not the end. For God, in his infinite wisdom and his great plan and purpose, reversed the verdict of the human court. As I say, the way the scriptures talk about this is that it happened according to the scriptures, according to the promises of God. It's there in verse 3, stated twice. The same theme permeates the whole chapter. It's at the heart of the Christian gospel, God's gospel, his good news that was preached uh, throughout the Acts of the Apostles in the first century, indeed following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you've taken your stand. It is the very source of your salvation, he says, if you hold firmly to it and do not waver in that conviction. One of the things I, th I feel passionately about is to inspire people to have confidence in Christ and confidence in God's word. We need to talk about that together, inspire one another to be people who have confidence, not confidence in ourselves, not confidence in our achievements or anything like that, but rock-solid confidence in Christ and confidence in his word, in his promises. You see, there are many voices out there urging us to doubt God's promises, to hang loose to his word. But I want to urge you this morning, do not be persuaded or swayed by those sort of voices. There are sceptics, agnostics who believe that when you die, you die and that's it. There are humanists who doggedly maintain that human beings are getting better and better all the time. I find that profoundly difficult to believe when I look at their television screens night after night. Is it any wonder that many swallow this lie and forfeit all that God wants to offer them in Christ? I find it interesting that on their deathbed, some of the sceptics change their tune. This is a very interesting thing to research, by the way. Voltaire, the great French sceptic and... Uh, who attended the court of Louis XIV, uh, 
made most of his life attacking the church and attacking Christianity, cried out with his dying breath, I am abandoned by God and man, I shall go to hell. That should have been the epitaph on his tombstone. Sir Thomas Scott, the one-time Chancellor of England, said as he was dying, until this moment I thought there was neither God nor hell. Now I know and feel that they are both and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of Almighty God. And Professor Julian Huxley, who I quoted last week, who denied God all his life, saying intelligent beings in a scientific world could not possibly believe in God, and I assume by that a miraculous God, as he lay dying, suddenly looked up at some sight invisible to those around his deathbed, and after staring for a while, he whispered at last, so it is true. I'm reminded of Pascal, the great French uh, philosopher and mathematician and Christian, who talked about his wager. You know about Pascal's wager? He challenged people around him, the sceptics and so on, and said, how would you like to uh, make the decision for or against Jesus Christ? He said, if you throw in your lot with Jesus, try and see if it really is true, what have you got to lose? But if you don't, you have got everything to lose. Pascal's wager. You might find that profoundly uh, unhelpful in terms of a persuasive argument to believe in Christ. That's worth thinking about. Worth preparing for that eventuality. I think of uh, a, a woman who's recorded in uh, Roberta Pestanine's book who was trying to witness to her friend about Christ and she was sort of meeting a brick wall and uh, Roberta Pestanine records the story of this young student at university and she said, look, why don't you just try for a day or two, pretend it's all true, act like it's all true and see what happens. So this girl, she said, you mean you want me to take all these promises of God, these words seriously, and behave if they're, if they're true? And she said, yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. And anyway, the story goes that this young woman who'd been evangelised by a friend goes into the library and there's some bloke sitting at a desk. And she gets all aggravated and she's about to have a go at him and then suddenly she hears the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Give him your cloak if he asks for his, for his seat. Give him the seat as well. And she backed off. And the guy said to her, oh, what's wrong? Oh, nothing, she said, nothing, nothing. No, 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 what's wrong, what's wrong? I said, oh, look, you wouldn't understand. No, no, tell me, tell me. He said, oh, look, I've got this friend and she's trying to persuade me about the truth of Christianity and so on. And uh, I was going to, you know, I come in here and you've taken my seat and I was going to really get angry with you and toss you out. Then I remembered the words of Jesus. And he said, oh, given, be given unto you. Ask for your cloak, give me your coat as well. She said, suddenly I knew it was true. Suddenly I knew it was true. You see, faith and obedience are tied intricately together. They can almost be interchangeable. The call of the, of, of the Christ, the call of the gospel is not just to believe a whole lot of propositions, it's actually obey them, put them into practice. I find that story uh, wonderfully true. It's as we put it into practice, we discover how profoundly true it is. Isn't that, isn't that right? The sceptics are alive and well, and uh, we need to recognise them. So what about these middle verses, as I become a bit more specific about the passage before us? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul deals with the sceptics and false teachers, 
and then confidently affirms the centrality of the resurrection. So he asks the question, what if there is no resurrection? The position taken by some in the Corinthian church is referred to in verse 12. We know, of course, that uh, this might be called the Church of God in Vanity Fair. This is hardly your ideal church. All sorts of terrible things were going on in the church, yet Paul can still address them as the Church of God in Jesus Christ, but they have a significant issues to deal with, not least that they were hanging loose to the doctrine of a bodily resurrection. So, to quote the words of Eugene Peterson in his translation, The Message, now let me ask you something profound yet troubling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, how can you let people say there is no such thing as a resurrection? So now Paul responds to that challenge. It seems that there were those in Corinth who, like some modern theologians, who want to explain the historic truth of Christ rising from the dead in poetic or in symbolic terms. You know, it's a lovely idea. But don't believe it historically, because they're utterly locked into a naturalistic worldview, where only things which you can taste, touch and handle actually happen. Unfortunately, naturalism is the great curse of the modern world, which we have to expose for all of its weakness. So uh, there are modern theologians who still want to proclaim that, and it seemed to be the issue that was troubling the church in Corinth. Now these people certainly, almost certainly, weren't denying life after death, for virtually everyone in the ancient world believed in that. It's simply what they believed in. It certainly wasn't Christian. They were challenging the, the uh, Jewish and Christian doctrine of bodily resurrection. Being saturated in Greek thinking, they were still thinking in terms of the immortality of the soul. That dualism pervaded the ancient world, especially the Greek world. When you died, you shed the shell of the body like a... of Paul's confidence here, we need to note two things. First, it's obvious that he ex had examined the witnesses and the reports that were circulating in Jerusalem and Galilee. If you want to list all the resurrection appearances sometime, this is a very persuasive list of people. Historic witnesses who could be interviewed, asked about it. They didn't make this up. That These are real-life witnesses. You can read, we've read about them in verses 5 to 8. Secondly, we have to follow carefully the Apostles' argument here, a very carefully reasoned and constructed argument in verses 12 through to 19 in our passage. Let me again refer to Eugene Peterson's words. If there is no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And let's face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications. If there's no resurrection, that is. I hope you're beginning to get the message. Let's hear a little more of Peterson's versions of verses 16 through to 19. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't, because indeed he was dead. And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who've died hoping in Christ, 
and resurrection because they were already in their graves, completely lost. If all we get out of Christ is little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. I like his blunt, confronting language. It's a pretty persuasive piece of argument, isn't it? I found myself asking whether we think of heaven as some sort of ethereal existence, which hardly excites you as something to look forward to, or whether it's something much more tangible than that. The New Testament clearly speaks of the resurrection of the body. Or to quote the great man Job, who suffered more than most, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Words captured, of course, in uh, the famous uh, Messiah of uh, Handel. But let me come to the second uh, point here, the second part of, of our text. That is, there will most certainly be a resurrection. Paul now sweeps aside these false theories and returns to the solid fact of the resurrection. He refers to Christ's resurrection as the first fruit, the first piece of fruit you pick from the tree, knowing that there is a lot more to come. The real crop is to follow, the real harvest is to come, that is, all who believe in him. His resurrection is the guarantee that there is more to come. Now, there's a wonderful symmetry about this part of our text, as Paul refers to Adam and Christ. The curse of death was brought upon the whole human race through the disobedience of one man, Adam. But through the obedience, the death and resurrection of Christ, life has been made possible for those who trust in him. This incredible reversal made possible through the miracle of the resurrection. One day there will be a great consummation, as our text finished, when after crushing the opposition and dealing with the last enemy of all death, he, Christ, hands over his kingdom to God the Father. And he won't let up until the last enemy has been put down, the very last enemy of death. If you're worried about the reference to those being baptised on behalf of the dead, verse 29 then don't worry. Do not get distracted by that. It looks likely to be a reference to a local custom, which Paul is certainly not condoning. Remember, this is Corinth, with all of the crazy stuff that's going on in Corinth. And he, Paul refers to this because he's aware that there are heretical sects around who were practising things which he didn't in any way condone or agree with. But that they were doing it becomes an illustration for him. It refers to the simply to indicate that what they teach, that is the denial of the resurrection, is inconsistent with what they practice. Since the dead are beyond help, so why would you baptise people on behalf of the dead? It's a heretical idea. And we need to recognise that, not part of Paul's main argument, just an aside, not going to be distracted by it, but he makes reference to it and we should understand that. I hope that will put your mind at rest. Well, let me come to the second main, what I call the second main truth. Remember, Easter hope is guaranteed by the promises of God and he never goes back on his word. The Psalms like Psalm 16 quoted in the New Testament foretold of Christ's resurrection 
You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One suffer decay. Psalm 16, verse 10. That is the promise of God. But the second half of this, that hope is grounded in the character of God, the very character of God. And I want to expand this out as we look at some of the passages from the rest of the New Testament. The New Testament refers to God as the God of all hope. Romans 15, verse 13. And at the end of his great treatise on the Christian faith, he says, May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. We are to mirror the very nature of God, the God of all hope. And speaking about persevering in this present evil age, he, as we await the final redemption, he says this, For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he has already received? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Romans 8.25 The Apostle Peter, writing to people who are being crushed by persecution and suffering, says, We have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, fade, or spoil. A living hope, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. So how does God enable this living hope to take hold of us and enable us to triumph in the most difficult circumstances? Well, the text from 1 Peter goes on. It is, of course, called the letter of hope. If you want to be encouraged, recover, restore your hope, go and read 1 Peter from start to finish. Peter goes on to say, we who have put our hope firmly in Christ Jesus are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation is ready to be revealed at the last hour. Let me repeat that. We have put our hope firmly in Christ, are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation is ready to be revealed at the last hour. I find that word shielded very significant. It suggests to me that even though trials may come, even though we might be buffeted by stresses and strains of the most painful kind, we need not be overwhelmed. With the news of another airline crash this week, was this week, was it, or last week, another airline disaster, I was reminded of what happened on the 16th of August, 1987. Some of you might be able to remember back that far. Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after takeoff from Detroit City, killing 155 people. One passenger survived. A four-year-old girl from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. Cecilia survived because as the plane was falling, her mother Paula Chican unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms around the body of a little child and would not let her go, smothered the child, protecting her with her own body. Nothing could separate this child from her mother's love, not the tragedy, not the disaster, neither the flames that followed, nor in fact the impact of the plane as it hit the ground, nothing. One survivor, shielded by God's power. What a powerful image. So such is the love of Jesus for us. But when we really trust him wholly, we are shielded 
by God's power. He left heaven and allowed himself to descend to the place where he covered us, so to speak, with his own body when he allowed himself to be sacrificed on the cross. He took the full force of the punishment which we deserve that we might walk away unscathed. And how wonderful it is to reflect on that afresh this morning. My friends, this is the gospel, the good news of Easter, which we are urged to hold firmly to. Otherwise, it may be that we have been believed in vain. Let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer. Thank you, God, for your great and precious promises, for the truths which have been faithfully recorded and handed down to us from generation to generation. We thank you afresh for this wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, we take these words to heart, shape our minds, our thinking and our behaviour by your eternal truths. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.